G'day. Hi. Hello. I'm Osha. Welcome to the podcast. Today on the show is Margaret Klein Salomon. She's an extraordinary human being, and um, I'm very grateful that she made it to uh, be a part of the program today. I don't make this show alone. I make this show with Andy and Rachel. Andy's my audio producer. Rachel's my show producer, and I need to pay those people. So to help me pay those people, I hope you don't mind, but... um. I might just play an ad right here. Now, if I don't play an ad, that's because you live in a part of the world or you're listening on a particular device where you don't get an ad. But you might get an ad. So if you get an ad, look, thank you, because you're helping me pay Andy and Rachel. And then in a moment, we'll hear Margaret. Here we go. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The world that we're living in today is done, it's in its last gasps. And the options are collapse or transform. And while that is horrifying, it is also intensely hopeful because given that we have to transform, we have to create a better world, who knows what we can do? That is psychologist, author, and the founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization Margaret Klein Salomon. And this is episode 333 of Better Than Yesterday. And welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Today on the show is Margaret Klein Salomon. She is a psychologist, an author, and she is also the founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization. She's on Twitter at Climate Psych, C-L-I-M-A-T-E-P-S-Y-C-H, and the climatemobilization.org, T-H-E-C-L-I-M-A-T-E-M-O-B-I-L-I-Z-A-T-I-O-N. 
<laughs> More about Margaret in a moment. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Thank you for being here. There are 332 or more other episodes of the show. On Mondays, I have a conversation with a guest. On Fridays, I have a conversation with you. I've been doing this show twice a week since 2013. And it's a show that's simply designed to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear on today's show will help you make today better than it was yesterday. And you'll go to bed tonight and go, you know what? I am glad that I listened to that podcast. Things are better than they were. That's it. That's what I'm here to do. And there's hundreds of episodes for you to choose from if you like what you hear today. Thank you so much for everybody that sent me a photo of where they're listening. I do love it. It's called a podsy. Like, it's like a selfie, but it's you listening to a podcast. So thanks heaps to Lisa, who sent a cracking picture. I know a few people have done this over the Easter break. They've gone camping in their backyard because it is technically school holidays and kids might have been looking forward to a camping trip and you can't go camping because all the campgrounds and caravan park and everything are closed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So Lisa is in the backyard in a tent and she's writing, uh, listening to your good self along with the roosters, kookaburras and dogs in the backyard this morning, struggling a little after night two, sleeping on the cold ground. Yeah, but there was a photo of their she shot it across the sleeping bags of a kid and the dog asleep and look worth the cold ground. Alicia listening, doing a bit of uh, paint by numbers of this cracking lion there, listening to the Sophie Hardcastle episode. She's written, notifications are turned off. Next up, email unsubscribes. Thank you so much, Alicia. Good on you. I hope it makes a difference. We talked a lot about that, turning off your notifications and unsubscribing to unwanted emails on that episode. So you may want to go back and check that one out. Darian's working out. Uh, she writes, thanks for the box breathing. Yes, box breathing is really good. I did talk about that in a previous episode. I did work out with my neighbor again today and I bloody, I was showing him how to do a Turkish get up. Haven't warmed up because I'm an idiot. Grabbed a light kettlebell. It's only 12 kilos. And I'm lying on the ground and I've, I've, I've gone into like the second position of a Turkish get up uh, where I'm basically trying to get up off the ground, holding a weight above your head. And the dog came and licked me and I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. and I lost control of this belt. It's only 12 kilos, but I heard my shoulder go, and I could feel the, the joint go like it was going to pop out again because I've dislocated my right shoulder again before. And it was, ooh, it was bad. It was bad. But, you know, we'll see what happens. It feels weird, but it can't be any worse than what, I don't know, jujitsu you guys do on a daily basis. So well, we'll see how I feel tomorrow. I could still lift the baby up. So eh, that's fine. Kelly wrote, trying to change the bedding with the help of the cat. We all know that's not helpful, Kelly. But it is funny because we all know and you wrote it. So thank you. And um, putting the finishing touches on the home gym. Kelly's in Geelong there. And Caitlin has also written, I'm looking forward to the check-in. And the check-in the other week, you pondered how our societal structures will change from the pandemic. And it just hit me. There'll be so many personal things that will be totally different now for all of us. My dad and I text all the time now. I know I wouldn't have been able to picture that before self-isolating. He checks in on me. We text about surfing even without actually surfing much, it's really nice and we've really become closer. Earlier tonight, there was just more people enjoying an evening walk than ever before. Maybe some people will fall in love with that and just make it a habit. You're right, Caitlin, and that is indeed what we're here to talk about on this show. Uh, so thank you, everybody that did write. If you do want to write in, send us your email at gmail.com. Really easy to get in touch with me. If you like this show and it is of value to you, the very best thing you can do for me is rate and review the show, but no, the best thing you can do for me is just tell another person about the show. Just let someone know in your life who's going, oh, I'm locked down. What am I going to do? So check this podcast out. 
just sharing this podcast with somebody and if maybe not this episode, another episode, that's the best thing you can do for me. So I hope you do enjoy it. I, I did tell you this week, I did tell you on Friday that this Monday show is going to be a bit of a heavy one, but it is one that we do have to have. I did record this with my guest a little while back. It was pre-lockdown, but I, I waited until now to release it because it's only now that some of the reasons why it's important to talk about this are being reframed and written about in the media. It was always an important conversation to have, but right now during this pandemic, which we had no idea was coming when we recorded this, we have an opportunity and it's an extraordinary opportunity. If you're listening to this in three years, this is April 2020 when I'm recording this, you'll know what we did next. All right. You'll know what we did. You'll know if it was a good or a bad idea. But right now it seems that governments around the world are racing as fast as they can to get their economies back to how everything was and everyone just pick up where we left off. But you and I both know, as we just mentioned, that there's a few things that we'd, we're probably never going to do the same again. On the negative side, we're likely never to touch a shopping trolley the same again without thinking who's touched it beforehand. We're likely to be far more careful about washing our hands. We'll probably take years before we feel comfortable about being in a movie theatre, being at a gig, being at a festival, in a packed pub, anywhere where people are jostling for position. Because right now that might be a risky proposition. And in the absence of a working vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, that's the world we live in and we will live in for a while. Yet you and I both know there are things that are happening right now which are incredibly positive. In my own case, regardless of my work situation, I'm getting to spend so much time with my family. I'm getting to do the morning routine with Wolfie every day. We, I get up with him and then we, we go all the way through the morning. We have breakfast and, uh, you know, change him, whatever. We hang out, we play, and then I put him back for his first nap of the day. I get to do that every day. And then I get to take him from dinner to bath to bed every night. I wouldn't be able to do that if I was working like I normally do. It's amazing to do. Audrey and I, we're talking heaps more. The connection we have as the four of us as a family, it's adjusting. It's different. We talk over dinner all the time now. It's bloody lovely. I'm sure yours is adjusting as well. Sure, being in everyone's faces all the time is not without its challenges, but that's okay. That's all a part of it. You know, relationships don't get built on this amount of contact hours. You know, you rarely see each other this much. And so we're all adjusting and becoming, you know, closer and better because of it. Yesterday, one of my neighbours remarked that our street looked like, he said, mate, it looks like the 50s out here. Kids were riding bikes up and down the street. Neighbours were talking over the front fence. Some neighbours sitting in their front yard enjoying a nice cold beverage. Other neighbours standing on the footpath talking to them having a nice cold beverage. Everybody enjoying the afternoon sun. I was bouncing Wolfie on my knee while Audrey planted seedlings in some cardboard boxes, which we'll bury later. That wasn't the case a couple of weeks ago. I can't recall a time in my life when that ever happened. Yeah, I saw kids on the street, but not kids and adults and people from down the street walking five doors up to have a chat with someone on the other side of the street. You can't tell me that's not a positive change. As a nation, on the whole, we... As, as a community, have recognised that there's a very real, imminent and potentially catastrophic global threat to our community. And we have, as a whole, taken a massive kick in the pants economically so that we can, as a whole, come out better on this on the other side. Well, there's another very real, potentially catastrophic global threat that we face, 
which will make this pandemic look like that one time that the plastic bag full of groceries broke open and you lost a week's worth of veggies on the floor of a dirty shopping mall car park. As a nation, in the last few weeks, we have become incredibly skilled. Even people who didn't read, even people like me who really failed maths in high school. Look, we, we, everyone has become incredibly skilled at, at being able to, to quickly read graphs, understand what an exponential curve is, uh, see what a doubling rate is, uh, understand what a logarithmic scale looks like, and indeed the dire need to keep various lines on a graph below a certain point to avert a projected disaster. We can all see that. Well, those same graphs, curves and projections exist for global temperatures. And the predictions about what happens when various temperature curves get to certain points on the graph have not only been correct so far, as evidenced by record drought, coral bleaching and bushfires, they've been happening way quicker than anybody expected, thanks to a handy thing called a feedback loop. So, now that we understand the absolute imperative why we need to flatten the curve when it comes to pandemic infection, it's not a big stretch to see why we need to flatten the curve on global warming, on climate change. You've seen the economic impact of this pandemic, and it's something that will be with us for decades to come. It's what's known as a shock, something that can't be corrected through policy, an economic shock. We've seen governments around the world try to grapple with COVID-19 by treating it in the same way that they treat any other external economic pressure on the economy, with a stimulus here, a rate cut there, a rebate here, free childcare there. However, this is a non-economic pressure that is really affecting our economy. A, A virus doesn't care about a rate cut. A virus doesn't care about free childcare. Similarly, when, for example, I don't know, when there's a a massive cyclone in North Queensland that is more powerful than ever before, thanks to the aforementioned climate change, and it demolishes, say, for example, the banana crop, we can't use stimulus or price cuts to fill the shelves full of bananas. We just have to wait for the bananas to grow again. There's nothing we can do except suck it up and appreciate that our favourite smoothie recipe will have to wait a few months while the farmers try and coax some produce back out of their obliterated banana plantations. That's what's what's known as a shock. You just have to work around it and appreciate that, yes, it sucks, but only time can fix it. The other thing to understand about an economic shock is that because our global markets are connected, one shock in one part of the global economy, say, for example, a war in the Congo could stop global supply of a metal called um, tantalum, which is a vital metal required to make your smartphone, which will then mean there might be no more mobile phones, new mobile phones made for a while. What we're doing right now is we're experiencing a mix of shocks at the moment. There's a supply shock around toilet paper, a demand shock around petrol. That's changed the price of that. It's less than a dollar a litre, but no one's driving anywhere. A policy shock, as we've suddenly got free childcare, and a technological shock in that we are figuring out new ways to work and educate uh, our community that we might not want to run away from in a hurry because, you know, there's some real great positives to working over a video call. But these are mild. And for the large part, we're only experiencing one external shock right now. We're only experiencing a a pandemic, COVID-19. But if you fast forward a few months to the cyclone season, to the bushfire season, Have a think about when you've got a bushfire raging through 
Victoria and you can't get people together in a community shelter because they might infect each other with COVID-19, then you start to pile things on top of each other and things do get tricky. Climate change right now, today, is causing shock upon shock upon shock that is starting to pile up and that slingshot is drawing back and when it lets loose, we absolutely won't know what hit us. As the world heats up, there's the very real effects of multiple shocks at once. There's food and water scarcity coupled with an epidemic of tropic disease in a country that's never had such a disease, but now the mosquitoes that carry that disease can live in the warmer environment that now exists. Couple that with the mass migration away from the coastlines as people retreat from the rising sea levels, coupled with road and rail networks that can't move what little food and aid that we do have around because they are being heavily impacted by that flooding and those tidal surges. Well, that makes a pretty tough way to live and call, well, this is the new normal. This is just what life is. That is what we're looking at. And it is horrible to think about it. It's so horrible, it can paralyze you in fear and make you not even want to consider it, make you want to think about something else, want to be in denial. I get that. If you've read my book or listened to this show, you'll know that this sort of thing sent me actually crazy. And I do talk to Margaret a bit about that. But we absolutely have to talk about this. We have to look it in the eye. And like when we get told something awful, like, I don't know, our favorite grandparent has died. It's horrible. It breaks your heart. It makes you want to weep and cry. We have to be in acceptance of it. We have to face it. We have to grieve it. And then be with the idea that the future we thought we had with them, where they might see our own kids grow up and they can be a great grandparent, that won't be there. And we'll have to find a new way to live without them in our lives. But in that new way to live, that is where I, personally, that's where I have hope. We have an incredible chance right now. Better than we might ever get again. This pandemic, this is the letter from the governor giving us a stay of execution as we walk death row towards the gallows in the prison movie. We have a chance right now to see what life could be like if we changed what we feel is important. Is it buying more stuff that makes us truly happy? Or is it connecting with people that makes us truly happy? Is it being a part of a community, being one of many, doing our part together for the good of all of us that makes us truly happy? We have a chance to look at our global supply chain and think about, is it a good idea that we're doing things this way? To have all the PPE that we need for our frontline healthcare workers being manufactured overseas, is that really a great idea? to have sent the manufacture of so many things that we need every day to countries very far away that it leaves us vulnerable to greater and greater shocks as climate change really kicks in because we now can't get those things because they've stopped being made. So if we start thinking about making things in this country again, reshoring of the manufacturing, we have a chance to think about how are we going to power that? How are we going to secure an energy future for our children and their children? Do we have a chance right now to give our country more independence than ever before? We absolutely do. A chance to be at the forefront of helping other countries achieve energy independence by riding this electrification boom into the sunset. Because under our feet, in our country, we've been gifted 
the minerals that are required to make the batteries that will power the electrification of everything. But what do we do with the income that we get from selling those minerals? Well, in my opinion, I feel we should set up a sovereign wealth fund. The profits of that fund, of this massive electrification boom, using that to create a sovereign wealth fund for the nation, we can assure the future of our community for generations. A fund that will help us absorb whatever shocks there are to come in the coming decades. There is blue sky in this conversation. There's blue sky that will have you seeing the Himalayas from India and the dolphins in the canals of Venice. But we just have to be in acceptance of what we have lost first. And that is where my guest comes in. Margaret Klein Salomon is a clinical psychologist, author, and she is the founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization. And she's in she's from Brooklyn in New York. Her book, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth, is out right now. Margaret's story is a fascinating one. I'll let her get into it. But basically, she asked a big question. What if global inaction on climate change wasn't a political or economic problem, but at its core, a psychological problem? What if we are in such denial? We are in the same place as a parent that, I don't know, like after losing a child, leaves the kid's room exactly as it was for decades so they can never actually move on, constantly frozen in grief. Margaret's message is one of hope, of triumph, and ultimately one of empowerment. A message of how we can go from despondent, bottomless grief and worry, paralysed in stagnant policy and ways of life that are bringing about our collective end, to rising towards heroism and ultimately adapting a warrior stance in the face of a global communal threat. It is a heavy conversation, but if I can have this conversation, you can have this conversation. Knowledge is power as uncomfortable as that knowledge may be. You can find Margaret on Twitter. Climate Psych is where she is, at C-L-I-M-A-T-E-P-S-Y-C-H. And uh, you can find out more about the climate mobilisation at theclimatemobilisation.org. At the top here, a a big thanks to Eitan Lenko, who lined this up for me. Uh, It was an extraordinary privilege to have a heavy hitter like Margaret on this podcast, and I'm very grateful for that. Like I said, this podcast was recorded a couple of weeks back, back when we could sit in the same room as somebody we don't share a house with. So enjoy, and I hope you get a lot out of this conversation with Margaret Klein-Salomon. Well, hi, Margaret. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. I'm finishing up this trip and heading home on Sunday. It's been an incredible trip. And I'm super excited to go home. Home is? New York City, Brooklyn. Right. Eitan, who's sitting outside in the air conditioning, was very kind to introduce us. And um, it buoyed my heart to know who you were, where you came from, and, and, and what you started writing about. When I first wrote, read the first couple of chapters, the first part of your book, it's everything that kind of happened to me. It's a fortuitous day that we meet. I don't know if you know too much about my story, but it's pretty much six years ago on this day. It's my little brother's birthday. It's February 21st. Six years ago on this day when I was living in Venice Beach, my brain kind of popped open and 
And I believe you had a similar story. I don't know if what happened to me happened to you, but suddenly a realization came into my brain of, oh, fuck, shit, fuck, where, fucking hell. What, why, what? And I wanted to run up and down the street and warn people. And I was, I started experiencing um, paranoid delusions. I started seeing things. I started seeing um, waves destroying the Venice Beach foreshore. And I, I started seeing water rushing down the street. And I, I wanted to grab people and hold them by the hand, uh, the collar, and shake them and go, What are you doing? Driving a car. You, we're all going to die. And I was terrified, terrified. It got really, really bad. And I ended up uh, dealing with when I, you know, all I wanted to do was, it got really painful. I know you have a past in, in psychology, so it, physical pain, actual physical pain, and it, it got really bad and it got worse and then way worse. And then my brain went, look, if you can't escape because you want to, all I wanted to do was run to somewhere safe and there was nowhere safe. My brain went, oh, I know a way out of this. <laughs> it's one way ticket though. <laughs> and, and that point I was like, no, nah, that's not a smart idea. Because how, how long was this? Uh, about a, four weeks until I started getting suicidal. It's about four weeks. But it was awful, awful. And I stayed that way. I stayed with passive and active suicidal ideation for quite a while. And then I ended up on – because I couldn't work. I couldn't do my job. My job's not hard. I count flowers, all right? I say, you're about to leave the mansion. And that's it. And I ended up on two different kinds of antipsychotics and SSRI and amino ketone. I was putting on a kilo a week. It was. Were you hospitalized? No. I was in a foreign country, though. And I called my doctor back in Australia and he said, if anything happens, get to the ER. But then I, he said, be careful because you might have a hard time getting out. And I didn't want to get 5250 and I was barking at the walls. I knew I was sick. And I was like, oh, I won't get out if I go in. So, um,. Yeah, it took a long, 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 long time before I felt any better. It was a long story. But to read your book and the part of it that I got to read, it made me go, oh, it's probably a fairly normal reaction. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and I would call that a healthier reaction than what most people are doing, yeah. which is just ignoring it, pretending it's not there, going about their lives. We should shake them. Yeah. Your moment happened in, in 2012 and I remember Hurricane Sandy because I was in the States at the time and I remember when the bottom of Manhattan started going underwater and people going, oh, oh hang on, and parts of, yeah, parts of Long Island. Like yep. Just going and houses being washed away and people going, oh, hang on. Oh, shit. What happened? Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I was relatively new to New York. I'd been there a couple of years and I was like, wait, New York City gets hurricanes? Wait, they're this bad? I don't, is this, uh, and it turns out, no, not really, uh, except now it does. Yeah. And it's just going to get worse. It's a, it's a for folks who don't know, a hurricane is a northern hemisphere version of a cyclone. Ah, okay. Spins the other way, which is wild. And much like Sydney a few years ago, we experienced a cyclone and what a cyclone's doing this far south. Shouldn't be. Similarly, New York's like, what's a hurricane doing that far north of the Atlantic? Exactly. It's, you know, never been up there before. What's going on? Right. They called Sandy a superstorm. Mm. And it's like, wow, these meteorologists and scientists keep coming up with new names to describe these new phenomenon. Yeah. We're running out of words. Yep. Uh, what did we call ours? We call it a megafire. Yeah. Because we didn't have any other words to describe 70 meter high. What's that? 200 foot high flames. You know. It's like a nightmare. Yeah. Traveling at 
30, 40 miles an hour. You can't outrun that. So I'd be really interested in hearing about the months or years leading up to when it really hit you. I'd always been interested and always been fascinated by it. And I had this interesting disconnect. I mean, I'm old, I'm 45. So I remember when we first saw on the news, oh shit, there's a hole in the ozone layer and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And here's what it's doing. And here's the effects that it's having on the reefs. And here's what's happening on agriculture. And then the world getting together and going, we can find a way to not use chlorofluorocarbons and other refrigerants. Let's phase them out. And they got it done. And I think it was like a year and a half ago or a year ago, the hole's almost completely closed. All right. And I remember that was then that we started hearing about the projections of the, they call it back then, they called it the greenhouse effect is what they called it then. And then they called it global warming and then it got rebranded to climate change because the change is a much nicer word to deal with. But yeah, it was called the greenhouse effect for a long, long time. So I always kind of knew it was there and I was aware of things like when I first went to the snow here in Australia in 1988, one of the ski instructors said, yeah, the snow line's been shrinking about 40, 50 centimetres a year. Like every year I come back, it's a little further up the hill. It used to be to this door and now it doesn't snow until all the way down here, it snows up to there. It's only a couple of metres, but still it was, people were in their own lifetime starting to notice changes in weather. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of always been aware of it. And when I moved to, I know when I was about 24, I was aware of, you know, resources use. And so I found out how much land it takes to make animal protein and how much water it takes to make animal protein compared to plant protein. I thought, well, that's a bit of a waste. We need that land. We need that water. People could use it or we could use it to make sure the air's clear. So I stopped eating meat back then uh, about 22 years ago. And then, yeah, but, and then I moved to the States and I kind of saw, you know, I saw how kind of wasteful as a, as a, I mean, I'd come from Australia, which, you know, we still don't conserve water like we should, but I'm, you know, going, well, how's there no half flush toilets anywhere? What the hell are we doing? I'm, you know, putting 10 litres of perfectly good drinking water down after a poo. What is, what are we doing? This is bananas. Water that in Los Angeles has been piped from the Colorado River. It doesn't belong here. And so I've always been aware of it and I've always kind of been aware and kind of maybe paying a little extra attention. I don't know the name of the bias, but the bias that if you buy a red Toyota, all you see is red Toyotas. So I was starting to look for it a little mm-hmm. more, starting to see it a little more. But yeah, there was a few things that kind of led right up to that. I was in a bad relationship. I'd, I had been on meds for a while. I was off meds for about nine months after things were going bizarrely well. My dad got sick. There was a bunch of things that happened leading up to it. But then on that day, it just all popped and my brain, honestly, only until about July last year were things pretty bad, <laughs> to be honest. And to the point where, you know, it's really, and you mentioned this, you know, I would get in a car, a rental car, and if it had climate control on the dashboard, even the word climate was enough to send a horror through my body. I'd want to poo my pants and vomit at the same time. I would feel these awful kind of like, like someone was punching me. You know, it was actually real physical agony. It was horrible, horrible. You know, I'm living in Los Angeles and it's the middle of winter and I'm driving to go see my doctor in the valley and it's 110 degrees and I'm just going, fuck, this is the first opening scene of Flash Gordon. The fucking what? Why is not everyone like stopping what they're doing? And it was horrid. It was horrid. But it's recently, you know, can, I know you talk about this, you know, I'm I'm also sober and, and I saw chapter one was accepted. So I went, ah, I know that one. <laughs> I just, I've been just kept trying until I found something that worked and I ended up with um, acceptance commitment therapy and um, a combination of that and meds and just a willingness to be with how horrible it is 
has meant that I can kind of sleep at night again. So yeah, tell me more about that. Tell me about the process of, uh, you, you, you say things are relatively okay now. I mm. mean, obviously the climate is not, but no. how, what have you done to some, make some kind of peace? Just being willing to be with how uncomfortable it is. Yeah. Just being willing to go, okay. And talk about it. Yeah. This feels horrible. Yes, this is horrible. My country's on fire. This is horrible. I can't leave the house. I'm 80 kilometers, 50 miles. I'm 80 kilometers from the fire front. My eyes sting from the smoke. This is awful. Can I do this today? Yeah, I can do this today. And that's it. All I can do is today. It's like sobriety, really. I'm grateful that I've got the skill set from that. Am I willing to be with how uncomfortable this is for the next hour? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And that's it. And that's it. And how about advocacy or organizing or engaging with social movements or politics? I talk on this podcast every week. We're at about 300,000 people yeah. that listen, um, yeah, yeah. which is nice. That's that's great. It is great. I got a chance to go on telly the other day and I was talking, this is how we met. I was connected with Aton because I went on to television and to, to go on essentially it's like our meet the press, you know, it's a big debate show. Q&A, right? Yes, that's the one. And having so publicly disclosed that I'd been so sick and that I had paranoid delusions and I had seen things and I had to be really careful to go on telly and not sound like I was still sick. So I made sure I did my homework, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and it was very tricky to draw that line of this. And, I, and, and it was actually speaking with Eitan who uh, introduced us, he brilliantly, he goes, look, the only thing that works is you've just got to speak of the upside. That's the only thing that will get people because the doom thing is so, if you actually look at it, it's like staring into the sun. You'll go blind. You will just sit down and not move because it's that overwhelming. It's like a wet blanket that's too heavy to move and you'll just go, there's nothing to do. I can't do anything. I may as well stop right here because there's nothing. I'm powerless. But I can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah, I think that empowerment, getting in touch with the power that we do have, and you obviously have a unique opportunity and audience as a public figure to make an impact, but everybody has some power. Mm. People might not feel that way, but they do. And getting in touch with that and using that and feeling not only like there is hope, but that we are building it together I think is the is the way. Mm. And especially that togetherness part. So many people feel all alone with these feelings and this knowledge and that is devastating. That was the wildest thing. It was like I was the only one that knew because if everyone knew what I knew, they would not go to work that day and they would go, where do I sign up? Yeah. What can I go do? Someone tell me what to do. Someone tell me where to go. Someone tell me how to, f- I just need to know how to fix this. Yep. There is no one doing that. Well, that was at the time. There was yeah. no one doing that. All there was to do, as you mentioned, is I'm just going to buy some stuff. I'm going to eat it or I'm going to buy a new thing, a new phone that does exactly what the old phone did but is so over many more pixels, you know. <laughs> yeah, the the answers of consumerism and what advertising tells us to do and what our system tells us to do are just totally insufficient hmm. to what needs to be done. What do you think? I mean, you, you describe a moment after Hurricane Sandy where you, you, you witnessed some pretty serious uh, effects of the weather and it, it clicked for you. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, so 
the subways were shut down. Everybody's job was shut down. Basic were services underwater. were shut down. Yeah, right. The subways were not built for this level of inundation. And they're still not back to full service. That kind of flooding event, especially with the salt water, is devastating to subways. And New York City was so overwhelmed with destruction that trees that had fallen down were just staying there for days and days and days. So yeah, I passed a car that had been totally crushed by a tree and someone had put on the windshield of the car a sign that says, is global warming the culprit? Question mark, just a handwritten sign. And I really, I really did feel it physically in my stomach because I knew the answer, like absolutely. And if the climate emergency could cause that, could cause the whole city to come to a standstill, all these floods and blackouts and damage, what was coming? Until we get to zero emissions, even if we reduce our emissions by 90%, until we get to zero emissions, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. So we're a car that's off the cliff, not heading off the cliff. We are suspended off the cliff and we need to hit reverse, not the brakes, reverse in order to protect humanity in the living world. That's a heck of a thing to have go through your brain on the way to work. <laughs> well, it is incredibly challenging. And without talking about it, without having opportunities to participate in transformative emergency scale change, it can break people's brains. There's a lot of kind of crazy-ish people in the climate movement because it, I mean, it's almost too much to handle. And so that's, I think, why having a clinical psychologist be the director of a climate organization and write this book is so helpful to people that, you know, we think of climate generally as a science issue or a policy issue or a politics issue. And it, and it is those things, but it is also very much an issue of our hearts and minds. I mean, when I got into this work, when I decided to leave my beloved job as a psychologist, amazing work. But when I decided to leave that because I knew that civilization was going to collapse and it just didn't seem like as good a career anymore, I started with the question, why are we committing suicide, collective suicide, and how do we stop? And I think that's absolutely as relevant a question as anything having to do with solar or uh, science or politics. I, I mean, this is a fundamental question that humanity is facing. Do, do we want to live? Because if we do, and I do, if we do, we need to transform. And it won't necessarily be easy. In fact, I think there's a lot of challenges coming our way. But I certainly think it's worth it in order to continue 
our, our lives to protect my family, your family, the entire human family, and the whole web of life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The parallels between this and uh, sobriety are pretty strong, you know, and maybe that's just as I look through it through my my lens of my experience. But with drinking, you get to a point of drinking and there really only is one way that it ends. You can delay it. You can maybe, you know, try and hold it off for a little while, but there's no other way the story ends. You either end up dead, you either end in prison, you either end up in financial ruin or all everything on the way to dead. That's it. And there's no getting out of it. All right. No one can try to escape it because that is what happens every single time. And until you accept, oh, that's where I'm going to end up if I don't change and I'm only in this place because of my own action, that's the only time that change can happen. And unfortunately, with alcoholism, you kind of have to wait. Certainly, if you've got someone you love that's dealing with it, you kind of have to wait for them to hit the rock bottom. And I wonder about the rock bottom. And because like any alcoholic, you justify Oh, that time that I, you know, hit a kid when I was drinking. Oh, I was just tired. Oh, the kid shouldn't have run out. It's like, no, you're an alcoholic and you've got behind the wheel. And, you know, people, they justify the way out of their behavior. And I think that's humans. That's kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Denial, other defenses, rationalization, intellectualization, whatever. We, we twist our minds into pretzels in order to avoid information that makes us feel pain. And while that helps us in the moment, but it is not an effective strategy at actually protecting ourselves and everything we love. So, yeah, I agree with you that a key question is how do we collectively face the truth together before we hit rock bottom? Because we need to mount a transformational project of our economy and society like we did during World War II in which we, in the United States and I know in Australia, but reoriented our economy in just a few years from a consumer economy to a war economy and everything changed. 40% of vegetables were grown at home in victory gardens. 10% of Americans moved to a different state to work a war job. Women went to work in factories for the first time. The top marginal tax rate was 94%. I mean, meat, tires, gasoline, and sugar were all rationed. Sweeping, sweeping 
economic changes that would not be thinkable during normal times. So when we get there, we can transform really quickly. But the question is, will it, will it be too late? When will we wake up? Will we be in such bad shape? So many floods and fires and droughts and famines and failed states and locusts and epidemics. Will we be so deep in that that we won't be able to hold basic functions together in order to transform? I'd like to think we wouldn't have to. I would like to think that you've got a technocratic government in charge of the largest, you know, population on the planet being China. And even they can't possibly try and think that they can save that Shanghai from the Pacific Ocean. But the destabilization that climate change poses to the Chinese government means that they will probably take it far more seriously than anybody else and go, oh, okay, because our power is threatened if our people get displaced. So they'll flick a switch. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait for that, which kind of sucks. You talked about denial and you studied, you worked very hard at becoming a clinical psychologist. You have a great background in why people find their way to denial. So, so, you take, so you're listening to this and there's somebody in your life, your husband, your wife, your uncle, your dad, your granddad, someone you work with who's just like, ah, I don't believe any of that shit. I've got a Dodge Ram. You know, I've got myself a V8. Da, 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 da. What's going on in their head? All right, because they're probably a rational person who has used science in their life, for example, antibiotics or vaccines or, you know, metallurgy to create that car, all proven by science. What's going on in their head that this is a particular part of reality that they're ignoring and they're vehemently, you know, oh, I should get on the fucking boat with Greta Thunberg. Ah. You know, what's going on in someone's head when that's going on? Well, it's important to remember that the fossil fuel industry has put a billion dollars into a misinformation and propaganda campaign. Rupert Murdoch and the propaganda machine have been lying to us all for decades. The conservatives and Republicans in the United States just spout lies on this topic. So... I mean, that's a critical part of it. I think that we also have to realize that the climate and environmental movement hasn't been entirely honest either for decades, downplaying the scale of the threat and offering only sunny, bright side solutions. You know, oh, this is great. It's going to be win-win. We're going to have solar. It's just a problem. We're going to reduce emissions gradually. Nobody's going to have to change anything. And... People have a pretty good bullshit detector, and everything I just said is not true. And often the people, I mean, even generally, the people saying it know that it's not true. They just think that it's the thing that they're supposed to say. So if you look at it from that perspective, you can kind of understand why someone who's been fed just straight out lies on one side and euphemistic bright side that smells like bullshit on the other side might decide, mm, I'm just going to forget about this. But there's also plenty of other reasons too, internal motivations such as, I mean, if you think about how incredibly painful and destabilizing this understanding looking into the sun, the truth was for you, you know, you can think about those deniers they're defending themselves. They're protecting against that overwhelming pain and guilt and 
feeling small and helpless and pathetic. Shame for using a petrol car and... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there is a major element of that. People feel, when you talk about the climate emergency, like, what are you saying about me? Are you saying that I'm a bad person? Are you saying that I shouldn't even be here or that I need to make drastic changes? And people will often protect their self-esteem above anything. So... There's a lot going on, (laughs) but I think it's also important to remember that that kind of like hard denial isn't the only kind of denial. Denial from politicians and centrists who say things like, oh, gas is a bridge fuel or, yeah, we're going to reduce emissions, we're going to price carbon and that's going to solve everything. That is also denial. It's going to be fine. We're going to innovate our way out of it. So if you expand it out into a spectrum of avoiding the truth, which we know is incredibly painful, I mean, it's pretty understandable. They're putting their short-term psychological experience over the moral necessity of facing the truth and reacting to it through constructive action. Because, I mean, I've got to ask you this. Do you think deep down people who are in climate denial, do you think they know? Yes. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think you can say every single person, but generally, yes. Which is why you get such kind of ridiculous, tortured logic like, uh, I saw a video clip of someone, this was an Australian person actually saying, oh, the climate's definitely changing, but it's not climate change that's causing it. And it's like, uh, what now? I mean, in New York, I've been there now for about eight years. The climate is palpably different yeah. from when I first moved there. Rain comes now in these intense bursts and then it's sunny again, like like the rainforest but New York City. And that's my experience that's also statistically shown that whatever intense rainfall has increased by more than 30% in Mm. New York City. But so science is clear. There's a scientific consensus with which people generally know about. However, more and more, it's just becoming obvious. Don't, you know, don't take my word for it. Look out the window. Mm. Does this feel right to anybody? Yeah. Is there anywhere in the world where it, it feels the same climate as it did 30 years ago? Oh, I doubt it entirely. I, and I, it, it's pretty tricky to, to talk about at the best of times, but, you know, when you do have people in your life that I think that adds another layer of, uh, particularly if you're in an intimate relationship with someone who's in that sort of denial, it adds another layer of pain onto it because how can you, this person that I love so much, my dad, my mum, whatever, be so vehemently angry but I think, you know, it's interesting when you say that, you know, they're taking it. What are you saying about me? Not what are you saying about what can we do? Is there any way through that? Is it worth is it worth challenging that with people? Is it worth trying to take that on? Because that can be as overwhelming is like, how am I going to talk? Like there's, there's a guy I work with, a lovely guy, very clever man, full-blown denial. And I'm like, you're a smart guy. And, and it hurts my head. And it's to the point where I'm like, I just couldn't be bothered. But 
part of me is like, maybe I should talk to him about it, you know? What would you say to people who are, you know, there's someone in their work, in their life that is like this? Is it worth going up against that brick wall? I think it is. I, I, I don't think you need to spend a huge amount of time or energy on it, but I think it's worth planting a seed and maybe it'll grow now, maybe it'll grow later. But I think you can say, listen, the most profitable industry in history has known about this greenhouse effect for decades. And instead of changing their practices, they launched a propaganda campaign of lies and it's been incredibly effective. And I'm sorry to say they got you and you're doing their work for them now. And I really hope you reconsider. I think that it also can be helpful to say, God, I wish that were true. Mm. Because that's what it is, right? That's what denial is. It's a wish. It's a failure to reckon with something really difficult and painful. And we can share that wish with them. I sure do without compromising the truth at all. Mm. Well, the first thing you said is, right, for someone that I've got to work with every day, <laughs> probably not going to work out. God, I wish that were true. Yeah. It isn't, but I wish it were true. Yeah. I, and I mean, you can, I think also just br bringing the discussion to the personal, I think trying to argue about the facts is probably the least effective thing that you can do. But if you say to this colleague, hey, how's it going? My life sucks because the climate's collapsing, but yours is going okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, like a little bit of humor, a little yeah. bit of like just sharing. I, I feel so afraid of the climate emergency. You can't really argue with that. He can say, I don't feel afraid or whatever, you're crazy. But he can't say you don't feel that way because you're just expressing your yeah. own experience. Yeah. I guess for me, I had to... It was only once I was willing to be with how awful it was that there was a pathway towards acceptance. Mm -hmm. For people who are listening, how can they perhaps even just approach that furnace? Uh, it's a deliberate pun. How can they approach and, you know, hold the door of the furnace open and stare into it? Because that's so overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Critical question. One thing to do is to pick up a copy of my book, <laughs> Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. It is a self-help book. It is literally written to address this question. And people, millions of people, maybe billions of people on this planet who are hurting and struggling to cope with this reality. And what I say in the book is to welcome fear, grief, and other painful feelings. That the more we hide from our feelings, try to deny them, repress them, censor them, the more control they have over us, the worse they get. It just doesn't work to relate to your feelings that way. What does work and what does give us agency to control our lives is to non-judgmentally, compassionately, and with curiosity, look at what we're feeling. I mean, humans are pretty crazy, right? Like we've got all sorts of chaos going on inside us, and that's okay. We don't have to judge ourselves about that. So whatever you're feeling about the climate emergency, it's fine. 
That's the place to start. What you're feeling is fine. Anger, shame, guilt, numbness, happiness, right? Like, good, fuck everyone, right? It doesn't, anything is okay. And the fact is we feel many, many, many different ways and they're all fine. So if you take that approach and you welcome these feelings, they become so much more tolerable, especially if you share them with others. If we approach this together in fellowship, I'd like to address fear and grief specifically as I think they are almost universal in this time of emergency and also so misunderstood. The climate movement has had the impression for decades that fear doesn't work as a motivator. We can't scare people, which is, I think, one of the worst ideas in the world. <laughs> fear is literally the way that humans and other animals translate a perception of risk and danger into self-protective action. If our ancestors didn't feel fear, we wouldn't be here because they would have just stood there as predators approached and ate them. If a woman that you know was dating someone who she was interested in, but she said she was also feeling afraid, you would never say, oh, no, forget about that. Fear is no good. That's fear is a signal. And we ignore it or minimize it at our own peril. Grief is also an inherent part of living in this time. Millions of people have already died because of the climate emergency, and a billion animals were killed in the bushfire. This is devastating. And to the extent we might feel that we want to not feel grief, block it out, but our grief is an expression of our connectedness and our love and respect for these people and animals. The people who have died from the climate emergency thus far are generally among the world's poorest people. And we grieve them because they matter. And to the extent that we shut that out and shut it down, we are shutting out our connectedness so when you feel grief, it is worth honoring because it comes from the best parts of you. There's another element to grief that is grieving the future that you thought you had. I mentioned how, for me, my life and plans to be a psychologist and to have a family and to write books, I mean, that seemed great to me. I was so excited and feeling very successful and, you know, the things were going well. But reckoning with the truth of the climate emergency made me realize it wasn't going to happen. Sure, I could still be in New York practicing and trying to live that life, but I would be hiding myself from the knowledge that me and my family are in danger, and civilization is collapsing all around. I had to realize that the future I thought I had, that I was planning for and working for, was ruined. And while that 
is incredibly sad and you know one's hopes and dreams and trajectory are you know some of the most cherished parts of ourselves grieving that opens up a space for something new a new story of self a new trajectory and i encourage everyone readers of the book people listening to this podcast everyone to think of a story of self, an identity that is based around protecting humanity and the living world. Call it a hero or a climate warrior or a protector, but it's basically someone who says, not on my watch. This is not going to happen and reorients their life to see that through. It is such a massive, massive global problem that just sticks its fingers into every single system that exists that has got humanity to this incredible point of survival and dominance on this planet to the point where it's so overwhelming. I certainly know the feeling. You're just frozen. You're frozen. So how, yeah, I can call myself a warrior, but where do I start, Margaret? Start by breaking the silence. There is an incredible amount of silence and taboo around the climate emergency. People don't talk about it because they fear being rejected or making things awkward or being told, you know, oh, you're paranoid, ruining the party, not getting invited back, whatever. Making people uncomfortable. I mean, I still feel this way, though I power through it, but it's like no one wants to give bad news. Mm. It feels like, even though it's not true, that somehow by saying this, I'm causing it. Mm. But that's not true. And we need to, if we need to uh, push past that in order to do the incredibly important work of telling the truth and breaking the silence, because humans evaluate risk and danger socially. We look around and see what other people are thinking and doing and how they're reacting. And if smoke is starting to fill a room, but everyone around is just sitting there and acting normal, we look at them and we say, well, he's acting normal, she's acting normal, they're acting normal. It must be fine. It must be fine. And that is what's happening en masse. We're all looking at each other and saying, well, she's going to the baseball game and he's planning for retirement and she's got a new job and everybody's just living their life. And so it must be fine. I must be the only one who's so freaked out. When in fact, many, many, many people are feeling this way. And just by not talking about it, we create a contagion of inaction that we can reverse. That's the good news. Because in that smoke-filled room, if one person says, holy shit, guys, there's a fire, then everything changes. Then everyone gets it. Now everyone can see it. You've, you can break through these social dynamics, which is part of what Extinction Rebellion is doing. One of their slogans is, tell the truth and act like that truth is real. That through actions, through disruptive actions and protests and strikes and other ways, we can communicate the extent of this problem. That we need to 
act like we are fighting for our lives because that's what's happening. You mentioned earlier the overwhelming feeling that as a planet, as a community, as a society, we are all very slowly, very surely committing suicide and willingly just wandering off to our death. And there's this kind of like, well, <laughs> look, I've got, a, I've got this new phone, all right? And Peter's just came out with a vegan drumstick. So, look, you know, I'm going to be watching YouTube on my phone while I eat this vegan ice cream. And I'm going to watch YouTube about something that isn't climate stuff. And then I'm going to answer an email that tells me to buy a new pair of jeans. And then I'm going to go to bed tonight. And I'm just, that's what I'll do. Because it's just so overwhelming. It's just so freaking overwhelming. And we talked about shame before that as a white person living in Australia, there is a shame inside of me that I have everything I have in this country because people before me stole it. All right. I can't give it back much as I would like to. I can't. I live within this system. I was born within this system. And while I could rebel against that, I don't know how to grow my own food. You know, I can't go and live in agrarian society. I rely on this system that has been decided and, and implemented before I got here and has developed since I got here. And as much as I don't want parts of it to exist, I kind of have to engage with it so I can live. I need refrigeration. Sure. I need sewerage. I need electrification. I like those things. All right. And I need these things. But parts of the system that I had no fault in creating are causing this problem, but I engage with it every day. And there's a, there's a shame within me for doing that and buying clothes and, and eating an avocado that's come from North Queensland. W what would you say to people who, who just kind of feel that shame and just like being a modern person in a modern country? Yeah, absolutely. I feel that way too. I feel shame for my participation in this absolutely destructive murderous system. And I also feel contempt for everyone else that does. And it makes me sometimes want to go live like a monk and just renounce it all. But I think that the better answer is to devote ourselves to transforming the system. That is the only answer. I really, really loved this book by Richard Rorty. He is was a like a psychological, political philosopher, something like that. And he talks about shame directly that for individuals and for countries, we need to have enough self-respect so that we can make ourselves better. If we're so mired in shame and self-hatred, that motivation or imagination of something better isn't there. And he says, no matter the sins that you or your country have committed, there is still hope to regain self-respect. And he says we need to be patriotic, not for what our country has been or is, but for what it can be. So it's that restorative, transformative vision that I think we need to be dedicated to every day. When you think about what it can be, that's the message, I guess that's what I try to communicate to people. You know, when you think about what it can be, when you think about you were a country that's exporting coal, like this is like technology from the 1800s, all right? We have all the free energy in the world coming out of the sky and through the air. 
we could be manufacturing with free or near free energy. My God, you know, we could become this manufacturing hub of the planet if we wanted. Like, what would that do for our economy? What the, like, it's incredible what the, the scope of what's possible. But I don't know, Australians are so, so afraid of goddamn change. You talked about the people sitting in the room everyone not wanting to talk about the smoke. How do people end up like that? How do people end up not wanting to recognize threat? How do people end up just kind of stuck in their phones, stuck in the endless cycle of buying shit? How did we end up like this? I think it's a combination of how we evolved and then how we have created this environment that is so different from our evolutionary heritage, which was in tribes. It was very egalitarian. The people that we spent time with, we knew incredibly well because we had generally lived with them all of our lives. And now, we, I mean, it's just entirely different. Everything is different. How we structure our time, what uh, stimulus we're presented with, as you said, phones and screens and billboards and advertisements. I mean, our brains did not evolve for this. And we need to be thoughtful about that so that we can inoculate ourselves against things like propaganda and consumerism. Just the recognition that we are vulnerable to being lied to and told that we're empty or we're not good enough and we need to buy this, 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 and this in order to be okay. But what we really want, what that is all about, comes from our evolutionary heritage in which, you know, live together, die alone. We need each other. We needed and still need social approval and recognition and to feel that we belong and that we're good enough and to feel safe. So I really, I really do think Self-compassion and compassion for others is critical in understanding this because, yeah, the system is fucked and society is so sick, but it's not intentional. People are hurting. They're, they're greedy and they're destructive and they're racist and it's bad and we need to deal with it. But it's kind of like, hate the sin, not the sinner. Like those people, the Koch brothers, Donald Trump, those deniers, Rupert Murdoch, they're all miserable. They're absolutely miserable. And that's why they want to destroy the whole planet. They don't want to take it down with them. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole lot of interesting pathologies around fathers and, well, you know, <laughs> and you know, approval going on there. You know, you know, the Koch brothers, Nazi nanny would give them forced enemas if they didn't poop on a schedule, right? If you think about little babies. Was she and, actually a Nazi? Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. If, if, if you think about little babies and two-year-olds and three-year-olds getting- i got one. They poop when they want. <laughs> well, that's obviously, it's child abuse. And it they didn't come back from that. They didn't seek psychotherapy. And I'm not trying to excuse them. They need to be in jail or one of them's dead and the other one needs to be in jail and not have this kind of power to bring us all down with them. But I am saying I, I empathize with, their, I mean, they're in pain too. And that, I think that's the thing, you know, I I try to do my uh, my meta loving kindness meditation for our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Oh, wow. You know, I try as hard as I can because if I feel what I actually feel about him, I will be eaten up inside by high levels of cortisol and adrenaline that will drill an ulcer into my stomach. But if I just 
Well, he, uh, no, I was once told by the actor Michael, Sh I interviewed him for a thing. Uh, I said, Michael Sheen, that guy that played in Frost Nixon, he played David Frost. I said, you do a very good baddie. And he goes, well, the secret to baddies is they think they 100% believe they're doing the right thing. And that's always stuck with me because it's like, look, as far as he's concerned, as far as all these guys are concerned, they're like, are you kidding, Margaret? Just no, you don't understand. I'm actually helping. Otherwise, they would be pure fucking evil. And I can't believe they're that. They just believe in the heart of hearts. No, this is the right thing to do. And Margaret and Osher and Aitan and everybody else, they just don't get it. Just let me do my thing and the world will be better because I'm doing it. That in their heart of heart of heart of heart of hearts, that's what they believe. Yes, and I think it's also to recognize that we all have an unconscious and we all have terribly destructive forces inside us. I mean, we're adults, but we all started as babies. And that immaturity and rage and overwhelmed by emotions, that never goes away. We just hopefully learn how to manage it a mm. bit better. But just like a two-year-old wants to whatever, burn the place down because he doesn't get the snack that he wants. Adults are like that too so sometimes. sometimes too. Yeah, they're right. They really are. And so I just, I, we talk so much about greed and obviously greed is a major factor here, but I just think actual destructiveness, desire for death and killing others is also just a big part of it. Wow. And sub subconsciously within people who are making calls at the top level. Yep. Because I can't believe that you rise to the point of a CEO of a multi-billion dollar energy company without having some ability to discern a rational fact from an irrational belief. You have to have some compass mentis. You have to be capable, you know? Sure. S -s wow. That's the thing that just blows my mind. How do, you, how do you get to that point, you know, making these calls? You talked about patriotism and it's such a dirty word, you know, because flying a flag or whatever has got such a connotation of uh and I, I like the cover of your book by the way for folks who don't know what it is the cover of the book is that photo of the marines raising the flag on iwo jima but it's a windmill like a wind farm kind of windmill and do you know the real story behind that photo it was posed it was posed because they didn't get it right the light wasn't right and the, the general went nah go back and do it again they were all in shadow, like, nah, and, these, and it's like one of the most iconic photos of the American military, of these Marines raising this flag on Iwo Jima. It was the second time they did it. They w went back on a boat or something and they went and did it again because it wasn't right. <laughs> but at least he understands optics. You know, he, he you goes go. like, this is a moment and we have to have this moment. It's the Saddam Hussein statue falling. It's the Berlin Wall falling down. What do you think is that moment of the climate emergency? What do you think will be that positive moment that will be it? When we get to zero emissions globally yeah. and dip into negative and we are actually moving towards cooling the planet. Pulling carbon out of the system. I think we should have like a seven-day party in the streets. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I'm down for that. Like, let's just go nuts. It'll be the once best. Once we get to zero emissions. It'll be the best. Like a, a week-long public holiday. Yeah. It'll be all paid for with cryptocurrency. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> but I think, you know, you talk about have hope for what the country could be. You know, there's so many incredible, and I don't want to be a techno-utopian, I think is this phrase. I don't want to believe that technology saved us forever. Technology will save us again. I think that's a bit of a fool's errand. Technology will definitely play a role. There are other ways to do things. 
you know, there are other ways to do things. Is our current in Australia, is the Westminster system of government the best system of government to lead us out of this crisis? Probably not. Do two parties actively, they've worked for a long time, but now when it's so incredibly controlled by outside money, is it doing the job it needs to do? Is it honouring its side of the social contract with the people as a government, I'm here to look after you and protect you? No. So are there other forms of democracy? Yes. Can we explore them? Maybe that's a part of the solution. And, and you know, when you look, I mean, I was having a conversation when I did on, on Q&A, I spoke to some heavy hitters, right? I spoke to some people who are so many letters after their last name, it's in that, like a jumbled <laughs> alphabet, right? There's one particular guy, fuck, it was heavy. I had to go for a, go for, you know, work out for like an hour and then sit with my wife and just sit with tears in my eyes after I spoke to him. But he said, in 100 years, the world as we know it won't look a thing like it does now. It'll be unrecognisable, the planet that we live on. We won't even recognise it. And the way that we relate to each other will be as unrecognisable if we are still here. And that at the same time broke my heart into a squillion pieces but filled me with this incredible hope of like, holy shit, because the only way to get out of this is if we figure out how to be with each other. That is the only way to get out of this. The world that we're living in today is done. It's in its last gasps. And the options are collapse or transform. And while that is horrifying, it is also intensely hopeful because given that we have to transform, we have to create a better world, who knows what we can do? While we're at it, you want to throw in a bit of equity? Well, you know, <laughs> throw a bit of Indigenous rights in? Come on. Abs I mean, it's civilization is going to collapse because people are starving. So let's make a commitment on every level of government, international on down, to feed and house every human, right? We're not doing that now. Seems basic and obvious, but we're not, even in the richest countries in the world. I mean... This is an opportunity to rewrite this horrible system. So let's dive in. If you could compare what we face to anything, if you could compare how we feel inside to something in history and what was done about it, is there anything that you could compare it to? World War II is the one that my organization and I go back to over and over and over in that it was deny, 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 America first, isolationism, let the war stay in Europe until a wake up, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and then boom, emergency mode, transition everything. Because people understood this is it. We either win or lose. And if we lose, nothing else matters. So that's the historical analogy that I go back to, but I also am really interested in the American Civil War, in which there was also a moment after the first shots were fired of just absolute passion. I, I mean, politicians on both sides and citizens were under unbearable pressure. On both sides, they said, we're going to win this. It's going to be easy and fast. Onward to Richmond. 
everyone needs to get in. This level of intensity is what we need. And that's my organization's goal for this year, 2020, is to create mobilization fever, basically to turn the temperature, no pun intended, of the public on the climate emergency up to an 11 or 12 or 13, whatever, so that we are just banging on politicians' doors day in, day out, camping outside their homes. They can't get a moment's peace. Their families are telling them, don't talk to me unless you deal with this. I mean, it's been a while since our societies have been in that level of passion, but it's past time and we can do it. That is people power. Yes, our society is run by, you know, sick people who are often psychopaths. And, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm certainly not trying to paint a rosy picture, but I'm saying we have so much more power than we think. And we can force them to do this. I'm so grateful that you're doing what you're doing. I really am. For you to see that the climate emergency is not only an economic or a political, but a psychological problem and are taking it from that space. I think it's an in that comes with so much more empathy and compassion than a lot of the other stuff. And it has an extraordinary way to kind of hopefully unlock a bit of rusted on gridlock. Margaret, I'm grateful you're doing what you're doing. However I can support you, please let me know. Oh, thank you. Can I ask you a question? Hit me. Your experience of... I mean, you called it paranoid delusion. I'm not. I'm not exactly a, a sure. I would call it that. that. I okay. didn't call it that. A doctor called it. <laughs> okay. Because I was convinced. I remember, I'm going to my doctor's office in Beverly Hills, and I was like, "Man, the, the society's going to collapse." I don't know if you realize. But that's like, not. But that you were right. But I was. As far as I was, it was going to, it was going to happen today. Today. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was going to like. It's going to. It's going to happen right now. If not now, it's going like, to. As soon as everyone figures this out, fucking, you, you better run. You better get to Big Bear. You got to, you know, pack, right. pack a bag. All right. Da, 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 da. All right. So obviously that sounds painful and scary and confusing and disorienting, but do you regret it? Do I regret? Do you wish that it hadn't happened to you? Um, who I am right now sitting here with you is such a different person, all right? It was so scary, so, 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 so scary. And suicidal ideation is an awful thing to deal with all day especially when you're trying to work and do a dating show, you know. I was literally standing on set counting flowers going, none of this matters, none of this matters, none of this matters. It was very, very, very hard. Putting on a kilogram a week on antipsychotics, trying to date my now wife when my testosterone was just like, those drugs are great, but they just turn off your hormones and you know, there's, there's no sexual urge at all. That's very, that's tough, all right. Um, I don't wish it didn't happen, you know because the life I have now, because of everything I've been through, is extraordinary. And what I have now, I mean, I was anxious to come and speak to you today, all right? But every time I have a conversation like this, it's so far from that guy that would glance at a rental car center console, see the world climate and want to cover it up with his hand while he drove, all right? And being willing to have a conversation like this and the life that I have because of it, my mom clocked me. And she was still alive. She'd already met Audrey. Audrey has a, a daughter. And so when I met Audrey, boom, instant family. There we are. Because I felt 
like, oh, why would I bring a child into the world that's going to be on fire underwater and at war at once? That would be a horrible thing for me to do. And she saw this. She saw me dragging around and she, my mum was a refugee who left Lithuania when the Russians invaded and fled with the retreating German army. So you know how bad the Germans were. The Russians were that bad. They were like, we should go with the Nazis. It's better if we go with these guys. Like that's how bad the Russians were, all right? Well. And then they were on the road on uh, like a human column of just walking for, for months and months and months and months and months. And she said, when we were on the road, when we were just walking in this stream of people, and you still see it now, people living in Syria. She said, people were still having families. People were still having babies. They would have dinner. They would argue over stupid stuff. Kids would fight. Parents would tell them to shush. Even though there was a war raging, they still had hope that it might get better one day. And we've just had a, a, a baby. Wolfie's six months old now. Congratulations. Oh, mate. It's astonishing that I got there because I was never, ever, ever, ever going to do it. But now that Wolfie and G are in my life, I see these two and I'm like, holy fuck, I do not matter. Me, I'm 45, I need a hip replacement. I'm like, I don't matter. These two matter. These guys are the reason and I have to do every fucking thing I can to make sure that this boy lives in a world and that I raise this boy to be a kid that gives a fuck, all right? And I get why other people are like, I don't want to have kids. I totally understand that because that was me. That was absolutely me. But now that I have these two incredible human beings in my life, I am so beyond driven. And this passion you mentioned, I am so, it's unquestionable that I would act or be in action because what's at stake? The lives of these two children. That's what's at stake. This is the bus that's coming and I am pushing them out of the way to save them, even if it means I die. And that's the end of it. And I would not have this drive were it not for those two kids. So I really hope that listeners will take that to heart, that this is a incredibly painful and grief-filled experience that you can pass through and get to the other side of. I could, I, I could believe it if I was... I would never believe it if I, you went back in time and told me that I'd be sitting here with you right now having this conversation. I would not believe that I would be at this level of acceptance. Never. It would just be, I would think you were as fucking crazy as I was. All right? And I could not even conceive that it would be possible that that switch in my brain would flick over to acceptance as much as I wished it would. Acceptance of the truth of our situation, but absolute rejection of letting it happen. Oh, fuck no. I'm not apathetic about this. Right. I'm furious. I just, I just want to make that 100% absolutely clear. Nobody, nobody's accepting the collapse of civilization in the living no. world. Nobody, There's a big difference here. between acceptance and surrender. Exactly. There's a big, like, exactly. the tanks can be coming over the hill and you can pretend they're not coming or you can go, shit, Let's dig some ditches. Let's stop these. Let's slow these, these guys down. Let's find a way. Absolutely. Because those guys are not passing us. No fucking way. And Absolutely. that is what's, that's where I am. And you know what? You talk about being in action. For me, that is really the only thing that makes me feel any better is to take action in accordance with my values. 
that is the only thing that makes anything fit because it gives me at least some agency, all right? And it shows others around me. There's other people in the room that are in the smoke-filled room. It shows those others around me. Oh, hang on. He's doing something. Maybe I should do something. Exactly. That's it. If we are going to get out of this as a species, as a country, it is going to be because of people like you who have that kind of experience, hopefully maybe a little bit more contained, a little bit more in fellowship with each other so it doesn't have to be as acute, but people who have that kind of intense experience because there's no way around it yeah, and come out the other side and fight. Yeah, that's, that's really it. That's really it. It's organizations like yours, like Extinction Rebellion, because I think a lot of people, they're just like, okay, 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 but what, what do I do? What yeah. do I do? What do I sign? What, what can I, what, tell me yep. what to do. Tell me what to do right now. And it's, it's really unfortunate that we have leaders that aren't doing that. All Absolutely. Right? And, you know, and it's a real shame because my kid's going to vote in two years and she can definitely see that the people on, at the head of each major political party in this country, there's like, none of them have got it. Absolutely. None of them have got the balls to do what needs to be done. In the final chapter of my book, I try to help people answer that question, which comes up all the time. What do I do? And it's as complicated and personal as choosing a career. How do I join this movement? But it's an incredibly important question. And I try to walk people through, well, how many hours do you have? Are you willing to get arrested? Do you have school-aged children? Do you have graphic design skills? Are you willing to fundraise? You know, just all these different considerations to help think where what they can bring can link into what the movement needs. Amazing. Margaret, I don't think this is the last time we'll speak. I am at your service. Well, that's terrific. <laughs> let's do it. Let's let's protect humanity in the living world. I mean, why not? What else are we going to do today, yeah? Exactly. <laughs> that was Margaret Klein-Salomon. Uh, you can find her online. She's at Climate Psych, and you can also find out about the work she does, theclimatemobilization.org. Oh, it's a, it, was a, it was a tough one. I remember after I recorded that one, I, I, I pretty much I went home and I, I cried in Audrey's arms. So I'll understand it if that's a bit much for you to, to bear, but look, like I said earlier, if I can have that conversation and, and be with it and adjust to the, a new way of thinking, then you can. And we have to, because that's, that's our only option. A big thank you to the chaps at the Batuta Advocate for letting me uh, record in their studio uh, where I made that show. Big thanks again to Eitan Lenko. Thank you very much. Uh, Rachel Barrett, my show producer. Andy Ma, my audio producer. Hayley Van Spanier on the socials. You for listening and being a part of this show. Stay safe. Take care. Be kind. Think about what you'd like life to look like after this. Think of what you'd like life to look like because of this. This is our chance. It's right now. It's today. It's not next week. It's today. Have a think about it. You can email me, sandosheremail at gmail.com. I've got to go upstairs and bath a baby. I'll talk to you on Friday. Until then, warm up your shoulders before you try Turkish get-up, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.